1: which is destroy and destruction. They're not the same word, but they're related. And the first word, Chabal, for destroy, is used for a rope that is slowly tightened, and it causes a person to writhe in pain. And then the second word, khabel, which is related to it, that's the word that's used for a noose that chokes a person to death. And so what God is saying is that if we try to make this earth our rest, then it's going to slowly strangle us like an anaconda. It's going to choke off our life breath like a noose around our neck. And so God has ways, thank God, but he has ways to keep his own from making this world their home. And a beautiful picture of this in some of the ways that God has, the way that God has is in Exodus 1, where if you kind of follow progression there, it goes like this. Exodus 1 says the children of Israel came into Egypt. And then it says in the verse 7 of Exodus 1, 7, the children of Israel were fruitful, they increased abundantly, they multiplied, they waxed exceeding mighty, the land was filled with them. So, you know, because they were fruitful and increased and exceeding mightily, they were in danger of saying, who needs Canaan? Life's pretty good here. I'm just fine in Egypt, thank you very much. And that's true of us. When the world smiles on us and when we're fruitful and life is good, then we're in danger of saying, who needs heaven? Life's good down here. Then what did God do for the Jewish people? Verse 8 of Exodus 1. And there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. And then verse 11. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, of Python and Ramses. See, God used affliction to keep them to want to leave. And they did want to leave. And God uses affliction in our lives to keep us looking to heaven. He uses affliction in our lives to keep us in the waiting lounge of the airport. Don't go wander off. Wait for your, call, wait for your flight. You know, God has ways. He has ways to sever us from what we hold dear on earth. He keep us in the waiting lounge at the airport. Don't go wander off. Don't miss the flight to heaven. Now, it's very interesting how verse 3 says what Abraham did. It says, Abraham stood up from before his dead. That's a very important phrase when it says he stood up from before his dead because it's telling us something very important about Abraham. When it says that Abraham stood up from before his dead, it's saying that there was a set time in which Abraham's, he had this time which he mourned, he grieved for Sarah, and then after that time, that was the time when it says that Abraham stood up from before his dead the time was finished he stood up before his dead he felt the pull of the sinking into a life of depression and despair because sarah had died and he resisted that pull and his resistance is expressed in this abraham stood up from before his dead you know he just lost his dearest friend on earth his beloved wife his gorgeous wife and abraham was in danger of over grieving for his loved one but Abraham resisted this pull to over-grieve for Sarah when it says Abraham stood up before his dead. You know, when Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt and he seized on Benjamin, they didn't know who he was, and he threatened to keep Benjamin there while the others returned to, to Jacob. And then Judah comes and pleads with Joseph, please let Benjamin go. And he said these words in Genesis 44, 30, 31. Now, therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it'll come to pass when you see that the lad is not with us, that he'll die. See, Judah said that Jacob's life was bound up in the lad's life. As believers, our life should never be bound up in any person on earth. So that if that person dies, then our life dies. It shouldn't be that way. As believers, there's only one person. Who our lives are bound up in, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it says in Colossians three four, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. But we've been talking about how God has ways to keep us from making this earth our home and a resting place, and God has ways to keep God has ways to keep us in the airport lounge waiting for the flight, and after the full impact of Sarah's death had affected Abraham. Then he stood up from before his dead. Now, notice the very first words that Abraham said in verse 4 after this. It says, after he said, Abraham stood up from before his dead. He says in verse 4, he stood up before his dead, and then he says, I am a stranger and a sojourner. You know, he had a lot of money. It says he had great amounts of silver and gold, and he had a lot of flocks, and a great numbers of servants. But with all that that he had, if anybody was in danger of saying, I'm quite comfortable with here on earth, it was Abraham. Or was anybody who, who was quite comfortable who would say, I'm, I'm very happy. Thank you very much. Leave me alone. I have a nice life here on earth. It was Abraham. But right in the center of his happiness on earth was his friend Sarah, a stunningly gorgeous wife, who was so submissive to him that she called him my Lord. Not bad, huh, men? Amen. Uh, A stunningly gorgeous wife, a friend who calls you my lord. I'll be in trouble if I go on any further with this point. But Sarah's death so deeply impacted Abraham that the first words out of his mouth in verse 4 is, I'm a stranger and a sojourner. And we can see how God used Sarah's death to keep Abraham in that airport waiting lounge, keep him from wandering off. And he says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner. I'm in the airport lounge. And when Abraham asked himself where his best friend on earth was. Then the answer was, she's, she's with God in heaven, and that's where I'm going. That's why I'm a stranger and a sojourner. See, like David said, after his son died in 2 Samuel 12, 23, he says, but David, speaking about his son, young son who died, infant son, but now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. See, Abraham missed Sarah and wanted to be with her, and Abraham thought like King David and said, can I bring her back again? I shall go to her, but she shall not return to me. And this lasting message that Sarah's death left on Abraham was that Abraham could say, Sarah didn't stay, Sarah went to God. I'm not staying, I'm going to God. And Abraham, he never forgot Sarah for the rest of his life. He never forgot her. The memory always caused him to say, I'm going. Even though Jacob, Jacob's going to be—he ended up with more wives than he wanted. He just wanted one, but you know what can you do? Four, anyway. He really only had one real love in his life, and it was Rachel. Not that that was a wise decision for him, but anyway, that's the way it was. And and Rachel was the love of his life. And he ended up saying, it's so interesting, you know, up to his dying day in Genesis 48, he's talking about Rachel, and he says in Genesis 48:7. And he's speaking to Josephs. As for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me. It was a long time ago. He says, but he's still talking about her. He says, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan, in the way when there was yet just a little way to come uh, to Ephrath, and I buried there there in the way of Ephrath, same as Bethlehem. You know, last night, at, night before last, at family night, ninety-two-year-old Muriel Pool, who lost her husband fifteen years ago, was telling us with tears in her eyes. How Bert told his father that if Muriel, who plays the piano so wonderfully, that if Muriel's arms were cut off at the elbows, he said he would still love her and marry her. She was crying. So just as Sarah going to heaven made Abraham want to go to heaven, so Bert going to heaven made Muriel want to go to heaven. And Abraham knew that Sarah was no longer in that body. And I don't know how long Abraham kept Sarah's body in his sight, but it was some time. And I want you just to think about that scene. When he says, I'm going to bury my dead out of my sight. It's been in his sight. Think about Sarah's body in Abraham's sight. You know, it doesn't take very long for the deterioration of a corpse to start. Especially when there's no refrigeration. And so there is Abraham sitting in front of Sarah as her body, you know, goes into rigamotus. What do you call it? Rigor mortis, And then her body bloats. You know, we used to see this with the goats. And it bloats as the gases form on the inside, then the noises from the gases coming out, then the awful smells. And Abraham didn't have any refrigeration to keep this from happening. You know, it reminds me of a customer friend of mine from Scotland, Dr. Alistair Devlin. And uh, he used to work for Serono Diagnostics Pharmaceuticals in London. He was telling me one time about it. He took a flight. He took from London to New York. On British Air, and he was sitting in business class where they have those two seats, you know, next to each other. And the flight was absolutely packed; there wasn't an empty seat on the whole flight. It was a very popular flight. And there was this very obese man, this American man, was sitting next to him. They started talking right away a little bit. And then they were about one hour into the flight, and the man next to him seemed to struggle, and then he stopped breathing, and he just lay there lifeless. And so, you know, Alistair rings the call button, and up up comes the flight attendant. She came, and she says, oh, my, she makes an announcement over there. Is there a doctor on the plane? So the doctor comes and checks and says, the man's dead. And, And they took a blanket, and they covered him. And then they told Alistair, we're very terribly sorry, you know. Only the British flight attendants on British air can say it this way, you know. We're terribly sorry, sir. You know, we're terribly sorry. But there's no place on the plane for a dead corpse and we're not going to turn the plane around to land, so you'll just have to finish the flight out sitting next to the dead corpse. (laughs) It was the most terrible experience because the man started to bloat, and then the noises came from the escaping gases, and then the smell, you know? And it wasn't just a few hours, you know, all the way across the ocean. I think Alistair was the first one off of that plane. (laughs) Anyway, it wasn't just a few hours that Abraham is sitting there in front of Sarah's dead body that once beamed with joy and life and seeing the deterioration that take place in Sarah's body, this process began to occur within Abraham where he began to become convinced she's not in that body anymore. She doesn't live in that body anymore. She has left. Just like the fiddler crab that got too big and then leaves a shell and goes into another shell. Sarah had grown enough on earth And she left that shell of that earthly body. And now she's moved on to a heavenly body. And so Abraham, this is a very important process for him. And he begins to understand that. And he says, okay, I need to respect the body that Sarah once lived in. So I got to bury her. And in verse 4, we see Abraham, he uses these words twice. And it says in verse 4, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. And give me a possession of burying in place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So he tells them, I'm a stranger and a sojourner with you. And he's saying, Look, my life is different from yours. But he didn't say this in such a way like, you know, push away. I'm pushing you away from you. He didn't say it that way. He said it as a way of invitation. And Paul expresses truth. He said, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet, not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or with idolaters. Then you must needs go out of the world. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother, be a fornicator or a or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard extortioner, was such a one no not to eat. See, Paul's clarifying what he's saying here. He said, if a person claims to be a Christian, is involved in those sins of immorality and crime, then we're not even to eat with them. It's interesting that Paul, and I emphasize that word, he uses the word called. He says he called a brother. He didn't say if a person is a brother, because when a person does return to those sins, it's just not really clear to us if the person's a brother or not. So he says if they call. But that didn't apply to the lost. That didn't apply to the lost. We are to company. We are to eat. We are to be with those who are involved in these sins. Why? So we can reach them with the gospel. See, Abraham says, I'm with you. So you can reach them. And the children of Hesh, and notice in verse 6, they say to Abraham, when they looked to him, they say, what do we see? We see a mighty prince. Oh, this is a mighty prince. Reminds us of what God said to Jacob in Genesis 32, 28. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. The word Israel means prince of God. So according to John 1, 11 and 12, this applies to us. He came unto his own. His own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them believe on his name. And since God is the, the king of kings, by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, when we become sons of God, we become sons of a king. And a son of a king is a prince. And so we have a, we are princes with power with God and with men. And so the children of Heth, they saw Abraham and they said, oh, mighty prince. Mighty prince, mighty prince of God. He has power with God. Now, what a contrast this was in how the children of Heth saw Abraham and how Abraham saw himself. The children of Heth saw Abraham as a mighty prince, but Abraham sees himself as a stranger and alien, stranger and sojourner. The children of Heth look at and they say, boy, if I could only have what he has, that ought to be great. He's really a great man. Abraham said, are you kidding I'm in the waiting lounge of the airport. I'm waiting for my flight to be called. I'm a stranger and a sojourner. I'm just traveling, just traveling. See, this is the hallmark of true repentance that results in really in a contrast in how others see a believer and how the be- a repentful believer sees himself. This is the contrast that's going to take place. With the Jewish people, when they will say about themselves after they repent in Jeremiah 31, 17 through 19, And says, and there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself, you know, saying, woe is me, and thus, and saying, thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou to me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. And Peter says in Luke 5 eight, it says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now we see in verse 6 how the children of Heth replied to Abraham and said, hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us, in the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulcher, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. See, first they call Abraham my Lord, Adoni, my Lord. See, the last time we heard Abraham called my Lord, we already said that, it was in Genesis 18, 12, where it says, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, speaking of Abraham, being old also. And then they told Abraham that he was a mighty prince. And then they told him that nobody was going to hold back his sepulcher from them. So these men of Heth, they're just falling all over themselves here, in praise of Abraham. They're just praising him, they're offering Abraham whatever you want, Abraham, because they knew God had blessed Abraham. It was clear they had seen what it says about Abraham in Genesis 13:2, where it says, "And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver and in gold." And in the next chapter, when we come to the next chapter, and we're going to read how Abraham sends his servant Eliezer to go to get a wife for Isaac, turns out to be Rebekah, and then he comes into the house of Laban there, and he introduces himself to everybody, and he describes Abraham in Genesis twenty-four thirty-five, which we're going to come to, and he says, the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he has become Great. And he hath given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and camels and asses. Now, they all knew that Abraham had gone after an enormous army of the five kings with just 318 men. He had won, as it says in Genesis 14 14. And when Abram heard that his brother, speaking of Lot, was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his house, three hundred and eighteen, and pursued them unto Dan. It was obvious to everyone who looked that Abraham was blessed of God; that he had power. And we remember how, just study this, that how when Abimelech and Phicol, the captain of the Philistines, there said to Abraham in Genesis twenty-one, twenty-two, and it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his hosts, spoke unto Abraham saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. See, that was the crowning. That's what people saw. They saw, you know, this doesn't come from Abraham. This God is with him in everything he does. He plants bumper crops. He fights. He wins. He needs. God gives. They just saw him and they said, there's only one explanation for it. God. God is with Abraham in everything that he does. And it was obvious to everyone around Abraham that God was with Abraham in everything that he did. And so he's like a prince. He's a mighty prince, prince of God. And when the men of Heth called Abraham, they said, my Lord. And they told him, you're mighty. No one's going to hold anything back. There's a great temptation here for Abraham. Great temptation. Because Abraham could have very easily have said, all right, now that's more like it. <laughs> he could have said, you know, I'm your Lord. I'm your mighty prince. I'll just walk through here, and I'll just select what I want. Very, very tempting. Because what they told Abraham was a strong temptation for him to become proud and arrogant. But that was the trial that God was putting Abraham through when it says in Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-one, As the ferning pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. And Abraham's being praised here. So Abraham is in the finding pot for silver. Abraham is in the furnace for gold. Because he's being praised. Big t- temptation for Abraham to become proud. And God's using the praise of this man to try Abraham. Now, by contrast, David's son, who was also tried in the furnace of praise, and he did fall into temptation. And he became proud, as it says in 2 Samuel fourteen twenty-five. But in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. But he fell. Abraham was in a great danger of falling into pride. But not Abraham. This is the beauty of Abraham. We see Abraham's response to these men in verse 7. Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even the people of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be in your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me to Ephron the son of Zohar. See, here we see Abraham, the old man Abraham, the elder, with all his great riches. And what do we see him doing? He stands up and he puts his face on the ground in front of these children of Heth. And to emphasize this, who, Abraham, the prince of God, it says, he bowed to the people of the land, and just so we don't miss the point, God says it again, He says, "Even to the children of Heth, it wasn't just anybody, it was these people. These were heathen idolaters. They were the enemies of God. And we don't see Abraham defiant and saying, say, "You're all going to hell, and I'm on my way to heaven. I have God, you don't." That's not Abraham. Not at all. He took the exact opposite posture. He bows himself in this great act of humility. And why did he do that? Because he knew who Jehovah Jesus was. Who said later in Matthew 11, 29, when he said, Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I'm meek, lowly in heart. Find rest of your souls. Abraham had learned who Jehovah Jesus was. And he took the yoke of Jehovah Jesus on himself when he bowed to these men. And then notice how Abraham did not act like he wanted to. Jesus- like it was so distasteful to be with him. Let's just get over. Let's get the business over with and I'm going to get away from you guys and I'm going to wash, wash your filthy influence off my soul. He didn't do that because not at all. Notice the words in verse 8. He communed with them. He hung out with them. He stayed with them. He ate with them. He talked with them. He, he was communicating with them. He communed with them. And then in further humility, Abraham didn't ask the owner directly, Ephraim, for the property. He asked them, he said, would you please go and ask him for me? That's so humility. Boy, that we might learn from Abraham to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God before a world that needs the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they need to see in us. They need to see humility. And that's what Abraham did.
0: Starting September 25th, join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the Service on YouTube Live, located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere.